Well, don't answer out loud, but do you feel safe? Hopefully you do in this setting, but as a, on general in your whole life, do you feel safe? We live in a nation where the monitored home security industry is set to top at over $100 billion in just a couple of years. And that doesn't include other forms of home security that I know many of you invest in. It's just monitored home security. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that the main determining factor in what vehicle we drive or where we live or what house we buy is safety. We want to feel at peace or ease or safe. Every year, insurance companies do supposedly independent studies about which states are the safest in terms of violent crime and natural disasters. I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, Tennessee has not made that list any time over the last several decades, not even close actually. Usually it's the, the New England states that win out. If you are so laser focused on safety from all threats, you should probably just go ahead and move to Maine or Rhode Island right now um, because those are the safest places they're saying in America right now. On a global scale, you know if you're really thinking about getting safe, analysts tell us that we need to look at Monaco. Monaco which is the safest against natural disasters, and it boasts a fairly low crime rate. Uh, and if you are making the excess $250,000 a year, which is the standard price of living in Monaco, feel free to go ahead and move to Monaco. I won't be joining you. Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, they're all dangerous because of violent crimes. The Philippines, India, and Indonesia, they top the list in natural disaster danger. So do you feel safe? Put all the stats and figures aside. It's interesting that the U.S. ranks very low among other countries in natural disaster safety. In fact, we're among the 20 highest at-risk countries. And Tennessee hasn't won, as I said earlier, a safest state in the country award anytime lately. I, however, very rarely feel at danger, though. Maybe I'm different. I think it's safe to say that most of us in here feel safe for the majority of our daily life. That's why I was floored some time ago when I came across a, an article that Newsweek published almost a year ago now, which claimed that over half of Americans ages 25 to 54 feel in imminent danger at least once a day. That's strong. 50% of Americans, ages 25 to 54, feel in imminent danger at least once a day. Maybe I need to drive a little faster, take more chances or, or something, but I don't feel that kind of danger. Maybe they just pulled the people who are driving beside me on Briley Parkway or something. They feel at danger when I'm driving. I don't know. But I've been told that I've got my head stuck in the sand and I need to watch the news more often. And then maybe the other side of that is maybe as I don't feel at danger because I don't watch the news, you decipher all that. I don't know. But whatever your feelings on safety or danger, I have strong news for you here today. Every single one of us is in mortal danger, mortal danger every second of our lives whether you feel it or not. 
And the source of this danger isn't from any law or legislation or the absence of a certain law or legislation that you want passed. It doesn't come from another country's threats or even from a shady character who might live down the road from you. Sin presents a clear and present danger in the life of every individual living and in this house of worship here this morning. Sin is imminent danger. So the story of Cain and Abel, it's one of the most ancient known to man. It's the story of some of the first humans who ever lived, the first to grow up in a cursed and fallen world. Their parents were our parents, Adam and Eve. And that first couple had already rebelled and committed high treason against God in their selfishness and pride. They had chosen rather to eat a piece of fruit over having a relationship with God. I hear so many people look at cynicism in Genesis chapter 3 and say, how petty is God to have excommunicated Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden for just eating a piece of fruit, to which I always respond, how horrible would it be for a human being to say, I'd rather have an apple than have a relationship with my God. This isn't pettiness on God's part. For that sin, the family, this first family, was banished from paradise The Garden of Eden, this place where God would come down and commune with his creation, where he would walk with them in the cool of the day, it was then closed from them. Guarded by a cherubim, a flaming sword surrounded it to keep anyone from entering. Adam and Eve, they they bore these two sons, Cain, Abel. And some have claimed that the duo were twins, although we literally have no evidence to that conclusion. It's just a a guess that many have in the text. All we know is that Cain was born first, and his parents, particularly Eve, celebrated his coming into the world. Scholars believe that in verse 1, Eve's exclamation, I have acquired a man from the Lord, it points out that she actually believed Cain was the one born to her to break the curse that Genesis chapter 3 had laid upon them. She thought redemption was so quickly at hand, just a generation away, but she didn't know that thousands of years later, that person and Jesus Christ would one day come. How wrong she was. I've acquired a man from the Lord, someone who would trample the head of the serpent, someone who would break the curse No, Cain was not that man. In fact, he was the anti-type of that. The two boys grew up together, and we have no clue how much time passes from Genesis 4-2, which describes their birth, to Genesis 4-3. All we have is that Scripture merely indicates, verse 3, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Probably a more literal translation for that first phrase is at the end of days, which scholars believe to just be a a casual, after some time kind of thing. So there's no specific year as outlined in the text at all. All we can deduce is that Cain and Abel, they're old enough to raise a crop, to shepherd a herd, and they're mature enough to have a relationship with God. 
Anything more about their ages is just pure speculation. I've heard scholars try to pin them down at like 18 and 17. Who knows? We have no idea how old these individuals are. Mature enough to work and mature enough to have a relationship with God. What's more interesting to me in that portion of the text is the last few details of three and four, which details that the two brought an offering to the Lord. Cain, who is described as a farmer, a tiller of the ground, and Abel, a shepherd, they each bring from their field produce or meat. Cain, he's the farmer, he brings his produce, he brings fruit and vegetables. Abel, a shepherd, he brought of his flock to offer to God. Now whole books, I'll go ahead and tell you, whole books have been written discussing this issue of Cain and Abel's offerings to God. Were these sacrificed on an altar? Were they left out in the open? What was the prescription for such a sacrifice? We don't have anywhere in Genesis chapter 3 where God says, thou shalt bring me an offering, nothing like that. Genesis 3 doesn't give any directions to give God anything. Is this an earthly invention or a divine direction? We don't know. Just in the process of time, two boys bring an offering to God. They bring from what they have worked for so many years or so many months, and they lay it down before God in some kind of religious ceremony or ritual, you fill in whatever you like to call it, They bring from their first fruits, or at least Abel does, and they lay it before God. I had all those questions and and more at the beginning of this week's study, and I'm happy, happy to announce that I have more questions than when I started the study this week. I've got no clue about the inner workings of what's going on here with this offering. Some have drawn a very hard line against Cain's offering being made up only of fruit and vegetables, which has no blood attached to it. What kind of sacrifice is that? It misses the point of Jesus being the lamb slaughtered and slain for us. And so they have picked apart Cain for his offering of of just being vegetables. Some seem to think that this offering of fruit was second class in God's eyes because it doesn't outline the weighty significance of his son's death and sacrifice on the cross. There might be something to that. But the word that we have here for offering in the original Hebrew is is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe any kind of offering, even aside from a blood sacrifice. In fact, Leviticus chapter 2 has a lot to say about these kind of grain offerings, which they don't put to death grain in order to offer that to the Lord. So I would say it'd be unwise to wholly discount Cain's offering only because It has a lack of blood or life to it. All we know is in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. And also, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But key on verse 5, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. I think it's safe to say that there is something off about Cain's offering and Cain. Technically, there's some wording in the language here that points out that Abel's offering was 
thoughtful and prime, first fruits. In fact, the word for the Lord respected Abel and his offering, it has to do with looking on it lovingly, almost as a proud father. The gift was well thought out and it came from a heart that longed to please God. Cain's offering, well, it just missed the bar. Perhaps Cain's offering wasn't his best. Maybe it was his leftovers. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 4, it seems to suggest that the main issue with it was that Abel's offering was the best of the best and Cain's was lacking. Kind of like a token of obedience, doing the bare minimum that he possibly can just to get by, just to make the offering and then move on normal process of life. It's the way it's worded. It's possible that God's dissatisfaction with Cain was more against his character than it was his actual gift, though. I really think that gets to the literal heart of the issue. Maybe Cain was merely going through the motions, putting on a a good face before God, while harboring resentment about having to give God anything of his. We'll never know. It might be either or, it might be both and, but in the end, God does not respect Cain and his offering. This we know, you can't fool God. How crazy is it that Cain thinks he can come in some semblance of obedience and pull one over on God. And God rejects his offering. And it brings to the surface something that I believe has been boiling up in Cain's heart for a while. His response is, as the New King James states, he turns very angry. In its most literal language, verse 5 reads that God's rejection makes him hot against God. I think there's a play on words here in the language where God accepts this burnt sacrifice of Abel and Cain's burning with indignation against God, although I can't prove that. Cain cannot or does not even care to hide his anger against God. He is seething, boiling over, erupting in anger, and the Lord comes alongside him and scolds him and says, how dare you, Cain? No, that's... That's not what God does. He's got every right to do that, to match anger for anger and boiling and seething with with hate, with malice. But that's not what God does. He comes alongside and he lovingly counsels this firstborn from Adam. Here, the heart of the father to this child who's angry with him. It's not hateful, it's not patronizing. It's loving in verse 6. When the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Pause right there in the middle of verse 7. Do you hear those questions? God, the, the good father, the best father, He's not asking for information. God never asks for information whenever he asks a question. He already knows. This is for instruction. It's almost as if God is saying, you know the right answer here, Cain. I've given you a a good mind. Use it, son. Think this 
through. In verse 7, when God asks, if you do well, will you not be accepted? I think that Cain knows this is the case firsthand. It's not only speculation. I think Cain experienced acceptance or literally the uplifting of God in his life before, but now he is choosing the downcast, angry, fallen life. So these questions that are coming to us in verses 6 and 7, I think Cain knows the answer. I think Cain has had a relationship with God before, and now he is choosing to go the other way from God. Really key in on on that in the text. This is God and Cain. They are having a conversation. Most of our issues with God today center on, do you exist, right? The vast majority of people in our world, they've got questions about the supremacy of God, but it all centers on, is he real? That's not the issue here with Cain. He is having a a conversation with his creator. Cain knows God exists. He's not an atheist. There's no pagan deity that he's sworn his life over to. Agnosticism won't be born for generations to come. No, this is absolute and total humanism on display. I want to do what I want to do regardless of who you are and what you say. This is just pure rebellion here. He's standing right in front of his creator. He knows what is necessary. He knows what's acceptable. His creator has just encouraged him in spite of his, of his sinful decision. And still, you know how all this will end. Cain will choose a life away from God. Can I make a fairly bold statement this morning? We can discuss and talk and argue even, good, helpful argument about the existence of God, about the reality and the trustworthiness of Scripture and all of that. And I, I hope you come with, a, with a, a general sense of wanting to know the truth. We can have that discussion, but I am convinced that the, ma that the vast majority of people, when they are questioning God, it's not because they really question its, His existence, it's because they do not want to do what He has said to do. If God were standing right in front of them, they'd still choose to go the other way. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Literally lifted up. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Look, I want you to focus on this text, verse 7, here this morning. If you do what you know to be right, you will be accepted. You'll be lifted up. That's the opposite posture that Cain is now experiencing with this fallen countenance. If you do not well what you know to be right, Cain, worse things are in store for you than just a head hanging low. There is something lower still, more base, and God goes ahead and says, sin lies or crouches at the door. 
You can hear it already in the language of the text, can't you? The Lord in His image-based language, He depicts a predator that is waiting just behind the door ready to pounce on Cain. In fact, there's an Akkadian derivative of this word for lies or crouches which has specific demonic undertones. Here's what I mean. There's a consistent translation that could be applied here where it says, sin is the demon at the door that you're about to walk through, Cain. Sin is the demon at the door, Cain, and you're about to go walking right through it. Don't go that way. Tim Keller has been a long-time faithful gospel preacher, and in his writing on this text, he warns about the smallness, the seeming smallness of sin. He hones in on that idea of sin lies or crouches at the door. Let me unpack that thought for you for just a moment. Our neighborhood has about a dozen cats. I don't think anyone owns the cats. I think the neighborhood owns the cats. About a dozen of them. They're fine. They don't get on my nerves too much. Too much. But mark it down. Just about every morning when I take a walk, I'm going to see one of these creatures in one of the fields slowly lowly creeping along. It lowers its entire body. By the way, how sad is it that my idea of a predator is a house cat in a field anyway? It lowers its entire body, almost army crawling through the grass so that it can look smaller, less threatening, or maybe even go totally unnoticed by its prey. Friend, can I tell you, that is exactly what sin does. It makes itself look small. It hunches down in the weeds of your heart to where if you ever even notice it, it doesn't look like much. It's small. It's not threatening. It's little. How many homes have been deceived, devastated by the deceptive smallness of sin? How many lives have been utterly devoured by this slinking, lowering predator? Too many to list. Not one of them thought, oh, this is a big deal. Not one of them thought, this will lead to my ruin. Every single story said, I can control that. It's just a little thing. It's small, of no consequence. That is because it is fooling you, lying in wait, crouching, ready to spring. They're lulled into this numb sense of delirium of how utterly not a big deal all of this is. That sip, that fling, that glance, that hit, whatever you want to call it, that thing which they deem as of no consequence. Small. Constricts itself. Coils into the smallest recesses of your heart. It causes you to overlook it. Or if you do notice it, shrug at the seeming nothingness of it. You know what I'm talking about. I know we're in church and I know that we got the suit and tie and we look all nice, but you know exactly what I mean. That thing which you think is no big deal, God has said very differently about that no big deal in your life and mine. 
I'm sure that most of you know that the most dangerous animal in the world is the mosquito. Isn't that weird? Isn't it strange that with all the apex predators in creation, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, sharks even, some of you, you will not even go into the ocean like past your knees because you are so deathly afraid of sharks. We don't put any kind of caution against mosquitoes. They're so common. They're so small. I know we live in a, a more civilized culture or whatever that doesn't necessarily have this problem as some of our third world country partners and friends, but we've grown accustomed to the most dangerous animal in the world. And so it is with sin. It crouches not just at the door, but it crouches down and it makes itself small in your life, making itself look insignificant, and then it pounces. It devours. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. The Lord really leans into what we know today as a human predator in this text. When he, he goes past the, the animal kingdom, he talks about a human predator when he says this whole idea of its desire is for you, someone that has a perverse desire for another. More often than not in the Bible, it's used to describe someone who will force himself on another person. And you can really see this idea take hold of Cain. This issue of God denying his offering, it so builds and builds in his heart that it utterly consumes him. Its desire, sin's desire is for Cain. It's like his eyes go black with blood in the water and his desire is to lash out. Can't kill God. And so in his mind, He'll do the next best or next worst thing. Cain attacks the image bearer of God. By the way, you, you know this. Murder is evil for obvious reasons. It orphans, it widows, it causes every kind of physical, emotional, spiritual pain. But what makes murder most wicked and so egregious to God is that it's an effort to extinguish the image of God from off the face of the earth. Abel, Cain, you are being dominated by this sin and you don't even know it. Turn in your Bibles very quickly to 1 Peter chapter 5. Lest you think that this is just some ancient story and one that you don't really need to hear this morning. Peter says differently. In verse 5, in chapter 5, verse 8, it won't be on the screen. You'll have to turn there on your physical Bible or your phone. The apostle Peter almost screams to the church, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring 
lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood and the world. This is not a warning that we should just hear as a history lesson. This is today. This isn't just Cain versus Abel. This isn't just the sin of murder. This is the sin of every sin. Your adversary, your enemy, he walks about as a predator seeking whom he may devour. His desire is for you. But you should rule over it. What? I should rule over it. That's how God ends his warning to Cain. Cain, you must subdue it. Don't give it any quarter in your life. Get this out of your life. Weed it out. There was a Puritan thought leader and theologian in England during the 1600s by the name of John Owen. He wrote and he taught extensively, but most consider his greatest legacy to be the book, The Mortification of Sin. It's weighty, but it's good. He describes or he prescribes from God's word how to battle against sin from the book of Romans. And our culture would do well to go to the library and pick up a copy. Before you do though, just hear the one phrase that summarizes the whole book. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Church, Christian, you got to hear that. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Get rid of the nonsense of this is a small thing in my life. It's no big deal. Sin will be killing you. And here in the text and elsewhere in God's word, the Lord lays out for his creation that we are not to be bound by sin, that we're not to be ruled by its tyranny, that we are not to be devoured by its severity. He says, subdue it, Cain. Peter, as I just said, he, he writes, he says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee in 1 Peter 5. James records, he says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, lament, mourn, weep, rule over it, Cain. Subdue it. Make it of no consequence, really no consequence. But Cain's not listening anymore. We don't know how much time passes, but eventually he gets his brother into a field by himself and the sin which had crouched at his door for so long would finally pounce and it would finally devour not just Abel, but it would also devour Cain. Abel, the innocent one, his blood is spilt. Can you imagine the dawning realization on Adam and Eve's hearts when they realize what has happened between their boys before they even know the Lord comes again to Cain, blood on his hands, darkened heart. God again speaks to Cain in verse 9. Where is Abel your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I find it interesting that God doesn't even dignify Cain's question with an answer, but we know, of course you are Cain. Of course you're supposed to look after your little brother. Of course you're responsible to your own brother. 
Are you really that fool to think that you're not? Where God had been so long-suffering with Cain, now he moves swiftly, heartbroken over the sin that Cain has chosen for his life. He is righteously angry at the slaughter of innocence. And in verse 10, God said, What have you done? What have you done? He knows. What have you done? I think Cain even knows what he's done. I don't know that he knows to the full extent what he's done. What have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cain has been tried and found guilty. It's obvious the testimony of righteous Abel springs from the ground itself. And now sentencing, it comes swiftly and it's twofold. Cain, you will no longer till the ground and be fulfilled in working the land. Some of you feel the weight of that. That would be hard for many of us. You're no longer fulfilled in your work. You're no longer fulfilled in your life. You, for the most part, you have no purpose in life anymore. That fulfillment that you got from doing the work of the farm, it no longer will be on you anymore. But secondly, it will no longer be accepted by God or by men. Read it very quickly with me in verse 11 through 12 through 14. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, hear his retort, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Don't read that as a contrite heart. That's not it. Cain's not saying, I'm sorry. Cain's saying, that is not fair. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. No longer will you be fulfilled. No longer will you be accepted. My punishment is greater than I can bear. It's severe. Friend, can I tell you, to live a life without fulfillment and without acceptance, that's a lot. But it is what Christ bore for you. Look, I know it's warm this morning. Can you give me the next two minutes of your attention? The story of Cain is the story of Christ. That's not fair, God. I don't have purpose anymore. I'm not accepted anymore. Can I read to you what Isaiah says of Christ, our King? He is despised and he is rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned 
everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He suffered for you, and in many ways he could have said, that's not fair, God, but it was grace, and that's what you get. You're far from God. You have convinced yourself that that sin is so small and insignificant in your life, and that is the sin for which a loving Jesus died. It is big. It is a problem. It separates you from your Savior. It suffered for you. Charlotte Elliott was this woman who lived in the 1800s. She grew up in a Christian home. She knew what was right. She knew what was expected, what was accepted. She knew the truth of the gospel. She didn't live in accordance with it. In fact, she lived in utter rebellion against it. And so one night, you can think of it what you might, her parents almost kind of trapped her at a dinner. They had secretly invited a pastor to come and talk to her. They were asking questions for him to answer that they were hoping would probe into the heart of young Charlotte and that she'd ultimately come to Christ. But she blew up. In a rage, she stomped off left the table, forgetting the you know, mid-19th century way you're supposed to act. And the few that were sitting around the table, they finished their meal in silence. But because God was still working on Charlotte's heart, eventually, sorry for her outburst, she came back to the table. The family promptly got up and left. It was just she and the preacher. And he began to urge her. Follow Christ. She was so overwhelmed with her pride, with all of her sense of worth, that it, it took a lot of talking to reveal to her that she was, in fact, a sinner. She'd believed the lie that her sins, her faults, her fallenness was no big deal. But finally, after two hours of discussion, she broke down. Then the greatest obstacle for Charlotte was the fact that she felt too sinful for God to ever accept her. She was too filled with herself, with her own works. And the pastor just began saying over and over and over and over again, Charlotte, you've got to come to God just like you are. Come to God just like like you are. The light didn't break. Preacher left. And where she had once been rebellious in her sin, now she was sulking and sad in her sin without any hope. She stayed up all night with those words ringing in her mind. Come to God 
as you are. She took pen and paper. And she wrote number 275. Just the first verse that night. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. Can you imagine the course of history, how would it have been augmented had Cain, who left the offering table that day, had he just come back to God as he was? Lord, I'm really struggling with why you rejected my offering. I'm confessing that I'm not really liking my brother. In fact, there's a little, there's a little hatred. What would it look like in your life? What future might be changed for you and your family and generations to come if this morning, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me come to thee, you would come to me. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.